thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, hello, I'm Harry Lewis and this is the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and medicine. Yep, it's that time again for a pre-recorded question and answers episode, a show dedicated to you. What does that look like, you ask? Well... It could resemble something like this. If Martians sent probes to Earth, what would those landing sites look like? Could Bitcoin really cripple the global economy? And what on Earth actually is ageing? All of that and more to come. If there's something that you've always wondered, why not get in touch? Let us help you scratch that scientific itch. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. But before anything else, we better meet this week's panel. So firstly, a warm welcome to our technological guru. That's Gareth Mitchell. Hello, Gareth. Hello. Nice to be here. (laughs) Great to have you on the show. And uh, you may well recognise his dulcet tones sat at home because he's actually a science communicator and technology broadcaster. He's the presenter of BBC World Service show Digital Planet. Gareth, you're actually an old lecturer of mine. So there's a little insight for everybody. You were a star student. <laughs> You'll make me blush from this end and no one can see it. Me too. And um, I, thought, I thought I'd better do my background research on you, Gareth, like I would anybody else, because I'm a humble interviewer. And uh, I took to Wikipedia, which perhaps is a bad sign. But I've, I found a couple of things of, of interest. The first one, this might not be surprising, but Gareth was a member of his computer society at school. More surprisingly, though, guys, he was also a bell ringer and organist at the local church. You kept that one quiet, Gareth. Yeah, but it wasn't so quiet at the time with those bells ringing out from St. Mary's Church in Welshpool. Um, That was quite loud when I was on the number four bell, whatever it was. (laughs) I like the way you were assigned a bell as well. We're also joined (laughs) by an out-of-this-world planetary scientist and producer, Chris Riley. Some of his work includes The Girl Who Talked to Dolphins and In the Shadow of the Moon. Chris, you're a very busy man at the moment. You got any exciting science productions coming up on the horizon? Oh, well, um, yes, I guess I'm trying to pull together a project in Egypt at the moment, which we're going to go out and film in December, involving genetics, DNA and Tutankhamun. I can't say any more than that at the moment. When you're of a Chris Riley nature and you have to be out there finding stuff to film, you're the one that gets the green light and is allowed to go abroad, Chris. Well, I would, I'm not necessarily. I mean, in the last almost two years now, I've been sitting right here directing films from here, doing all the interviews down the line, a bit like we're doing now, and suggesting they point cameras in different directions, writing long shot lists, which everybody ignores. So, yeah, it's been um, quite frustrating. So you've got the itch. You've got the itch and you've got to get back out there. Oh, yes. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> um, we also have Woodlouse know-it-all and wildlife expert. That's Eleanor Drinkwater. She's our third <laughs> panellist. Uh, it's difficult for you to see but she's actually brought some extra contestants i believe uh yes i have indeed i have indeed uh can you guys uh uh see see oh. this this fine gentleman it's a that is a snail, snail. <laughs> uh, you're looking at uh, uh sherlock holmes who is a very discerning uh snail this, this is actually his, his third uh interview on radio so yeah he's very happy to be here or, or she they be warned because this means that eleanor has a bit of a hand in the quiz that we normally have in this segment of the show later on <laughs> And last but not least, our final guest is Andrew Steele. He is uh, our man of steel, if you will, our superhero of the moment. Superman doesn't age. Well, Andrew knows all about the ageing process. Andrew, uh, tell us, you've had a book out for the last couple of months. What is it? What has it been about? 
The book's called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. And it's about the incredible developments in ageing biology that are allowing us to slow down and maybe even reverse the ageing process. You've got some really cool ideas happening in the lab. And the book's all about the sort of process we're going to have to go through to get those you know, first treatments from mice into actually working in people and what that could mean in terms of living much longer and most importantly, healthier lives. You've had a bit of time to yourself recently since the, the big press release has all calmed down. What have you been doing in the meantime? What have you been working on? Oh, it's finally starting to cool off a bit. The book came out at the start of the year in the UK and in March in the US, so it's been an absolute publicity treadmill since then. But I'm finally getting a bit of time to spend on my YouTube channel, so I'm making a few videos. And actually, the one I'm making at the moment is about ageing biology, so it's just a, it seems to be a topic I can't stop talking about. So you've met the panel, but before we get to the questions, we like to kickstart the show with a little game of Guess Who. Throughout the show, we're going to be dropping clues, small hints, as to what our mystery thing for today might be. Now, if you're listening in, Keep that finger of yours on the buzzer and see if you can beat the panel. Without further ado, guys, here's your first clue. It's a sound clue. And Gareth, be warned, I'm coming to you. It's an odd one, isn't it? It is odd. That's really odd. It sounds bird-like to me. Hard to I, tell if it's laughing or dying. Yeah, that'd be my worry. I can't. Well. I can't think of any birds that make that sound when they laugh or die. But then again, <laughs> I'm not an ornithologist. So Gareth's going with the bird. There's going to be a couple more clues later on. So we'll come back to this. Sticking with you though, Gareth. If you are plugged into the world of cryptocurrency, you'll be aware that the Bank of England appears to be quite worried about the trading of Bitcoin, and they're thinking that it could lead to a crash in financial markets similar to those that were seen in 2008. And that came out in an interview earlier this week where Sir John Cunliffe, Deputy Governor of Financial Stability, called for the regulation of crypto, declaring it a growing threat to the global economy. Gareth, you might have to take me right back to basics here, but what is Bitcoin and why is it causing such a financial stir? Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin is, it's a digital asset, basically. So it's a a digital asset that we can buy and sell through exchanges. But there's a key difference because you might say that an MP3 file or a JPEG, they're both digital assets. Like this um, radio show, if it's available as a podcast, is a digital asset. But the thing is, of course, with an mp3 file you can make as many copies as you want so that would be a pretty lousy currency if you could just it's like photocopying banknotes you know it would just be ridiculous it wouldn't work so the thing that makes the digital asset that is bitcoin a currency is the way that um, if for instance i'm exchanging something to you and we're exchanging bitcoin the proof that i've handed that asset to you and the proof that you can trust is that that transaction is logged on this thing called the blockchain. I'm sure lots of people have heard about blockchains. There are lots of really complicated explanations for them. But you can think of the blockchain as almost like a massive, great, big shared spreadsheet. So, and everyone has a copy of this spreadsheet. And so that transaction between, for instance, you and I of that Bitcoin is logged on this spreadsheet. And of course, Chris or anybody else could come along and then delete the entry from the spreadsheet. But every entry is what we call cryptographically sealed. So once it's there, it can't be removed. And so that makes it an asset that can be bought and sold. And without a trusted third party, that's why it's people are saying it'll do away with banks. Because traditionally, for us to exchange assets, we would have to go through some kind of trusted third party, which might be a bank or a traditional currency. Mm. And it's been around for quite a while, Gareth. So why is it now all of a sudden starting to to scare the financial market i think because it's just grown so much it's become blockchain has become such a a thing basically you know so five years ago a bitcoin was worth just 500 pounds and as we record this the the value when i looked it up just now is forty six thousand pounds um for a bitcoin so it has grown to the level that people like us are talking about it and the big central banks are talking about it and so it's obviously capturing a lot of attention and i suppose the question is does that attention warrant bitcoin some sort of special status maybe you know people are saying it's going to disrupt and probably is already disrupting the banking system but will it do away with central banks and traditional currencies altogether and i think that's the big discussion at the moment it kind of takes me back to the thought of when it was first around and you could spend a bitcoin or something buying a cup of coffee Chris, blasting off from kind of, I guess, one world that feels very alien to me to another um, would be to talk about Mars and the successful missions to the Red Planet. You know, it's been a real year for it. We've had UEA's Hope Satellite. 
We've had China landing their first rover on the surface, and we've also had Perseverance that's been out scavenging for signs of Martian life. So far, without much luck, but maybe, Chris, you can help us put this into perspective, each landing site on our closest cosmic neighbour acts as sort of a little snapshot of what Mars looks like. But what if our places were reversed? What if we lived on Mars and we tried digging up more information about Earth? What would the landing sites look like here on our planet? Well, back in February, prior to the launch of Perseverance, Chris set up a project on Medium called Worlds Apart, transposing the landing sites of Mars to their respective locations here on Earth. Chris, how many landing sites are we talking about? And uh, what made you come up with this idea? Well, yes, Harry, good questions. Uh, Well, when I did this exercise in, in February, there were eight martian landing sites to play around with they're all in fact nasa's um projects uh, other um space agencies have tried to go um and and not succeeded uh, but eight times nasa has succeeded in a soft landing the reason i did this was that people kept sort of um looking at these brand new pictures of mars that were coming back friends of mine and they'd they'd say oh it just looks the same as the last one the sky's a bit red the ground's a bit red the rocks are rocky and the sand is sandy and what is the point in going again? And, and I wanted to kind of grab them and shake them and say, no, no, each one of these sites, I'm, I'm a geomorphologist by background, my PhD is in geomorphology. Each one of these sites is uniquely different. They just look the same colour because there's not this kind of beautiful mantle of biodiversity on Mars that, that gives Earth such a range of kind of special landscapes. But so, so I thought, well, I'll draw attention to this diversity of what, what Mars really does look like by comparing pictures to the same latitudes and longitudes on Earth. I didn't know what I'd find when I first started this. I'd ne- never, never looked into this before. And it turned out actually five of the eight Martian landing sites corresponded to some of Earth's giant oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific. And what I found interesting about those was that, of course, um, it was impossible to see any life. There was no evidence of life. I mean, there was the prospect of life because they were wet, unlike Mars. It's very dry. But there was no actual life visible. It was just these big kind of waterscapes. So two of the three locations then mapped onto arboreal forests in Bikin, a forest in, in, in eastern Siberia. And, and the Phoenix Polar Lander on Mars touched down the equivalent place of, of Tuktut Nugget National Park in northern Canada. So these places give us a kind of glimpse of life, relatively sort of simple plant-like life, just mostly trees and bushes. And then the Curiosity rover landed in the only spot that was sort of equatorial, an equatorial rainforest in West Papua New Guinea, the equivalent of that on Earth. And this had a greater diversity of life in sight on just a random snapshot of it. But again, it was mostly plant life. I couldn't see any creatures in the sort of random shot I managed to, to pull out of there. So what was very remarkable was that Earth wasn't quite as varied as I thought it was going to be, actually, number one. And number two, there there wasn't any sign of human life, actually. So I thought, well, how much actually of Earth have we kind of changed? So when I looked that up, it was like 3% of Earth's planetary surface is where we inhabit, incredibly. You know, 7, 8 billion of us only take up our our, our, our towns and cities 3%. But our, our outreach beyond that to sustain our lives takes up sort of 50 to 70 percent of Earth. And yet still, these eight points on Earth actually are so remote that they bear no marks of us at all. Even these days with Google Earth and Street View, it's very hard to get precise pictures of these exact locations. I had to be a bit more vague, actually, with, with where I was um, picking them. Anyway, we talked about this back at the beginning of this year on, on his Digital Planet uh, show on the World Service, BBC World Service. And I pointed out at that time that the Perseverance lander, which was just about to touch down, this big, amazing sort of six-wheel rover, NASA's latest one, was going to land on a site that was actually a bit more inhabited relatively to the the place on Earth, I mean, in a place called Telangana, which is about 100 miles northeast of Hyderabad. So um, I tracked down a school that was nearby in a place called Sawali, a little, tiny little school and a polytechnic in a, in a town just nearby called Lonnie. And I reached out to both of them. I said, hey, but I never heard back from them. And apparently they're, they're such rural locations. These They don't have real reliable internet connections. So um, I tried Astronomers Without Borders next. And that network, which goes around the globe, had loads of Indian contacts. That didn't work either. So I'm afraid to say I still haven't managed. To, We're still one short. We're still one short. It was easier to get a shot from Mars than from Earth, unbelievably. <laughs> so there's still oh. still a little bit of way to go, but maybe potentially in the future, if someone's listening now, where do they have to be near? Where do they have to be near to uh, to help you out, Chris? 
Yeah, well, okay. So if anyone is listening and is interested in contacting me, then so in nor- about 100 um, kilometres northwest of the top of Hyderabad, that vicinity, please get in touch. Um, I'd, lo- I'd love to know. Equally, China, as you, you might know, touched down the ta- Tianwen-1 lander for the first time on Mars a few weeks later. And coincidentally, that spot maps onto an area in southern China, extraordinarily, randomly, um, which is 40 kilometres southwest of a place called Guilin. So anyone up for a bit of a trek into the forests uh, outside Guilin, please get in touch too. <laughs> Fantastic. That goes out to the listeners in Guilin. There you go. Get in touch with us and we'll, we'll send you over to Chris to give him a hand. Right, Eleanor, moving on to you. I've got a question that's been sent in from one of our listeners called Colin. Um, He's been looking skyward, but instead of checking out the satellites and Red Planet, he's uh, been watching the birds instead. He wants to know, why do birds bother to migrate and why do most species settle for winter in the southern hemisphere before going north for the summer? Why isn't it the other way around? Okay, so this is is a really, really great question. And so... Basically, what a bird is looking for is it's looking for the right kind of conditions. It's looking for a place where it can can feed. It's looking for breeding grounds. And so it will move depending on that. And so it depends on what hemisphere you're in. So if you're in the northern hemisphere, you travel south. And in the southern hemisphere, you travel north. So there's kind of it depends on where you are as to where the best place to be is for for uh, for, for summer or winter. So uh, so, yeah, so it's a. It's a it's a really really good question. That does that kind of answer it? Yeah, it does. And um, do any of these migrations in particular? Is there any bird migrations that really stand out to you? Oh yes, absolutely. There's. I mean, there are so many wonderful, wonderful examples of incredible migrations. But for me, the best one. All right, one of my top migrations would probably be the Arctic tern. And now this incredible bird, it actually migrates from the Arctic summer, and then it follows the summer all the way down to Antarctica. And it does that every year. And the craziest thing is it doesn't also go directly. It takes a more kind of roundabout route. So you're ending up looking at a migration path of 30,000 kilometres, which is just an insane amount. In fact, it's such a big amount that, that I had to try and like kind of put that into perspective a little bit. And I, I looked up, um, there, was a, there was a study that was done, I think in 2010, and it suggested that the average American walked about four kilometres a day. So then if you if you kind of uh, do the maths, then this is the equivalent of this bird is moving every year, the equivalent to the average American, what they would move in about 20 years, um, which is, you know, it's just extraordinary for, for a relatively kind of small little bird, but it makes this incredible journey. I just and it is quite small as well, isn't it? It's not a big bird. Yeah. No, it's a small bird. You're looking at something that's about 40 centimetres long. Um, so, yeah, an incredible yeah, so that's that's quite a lot smaller than the average American, which makes their their feet even even more incredible. So I'm I'm, I'm equally astonished, Eleanor, by how how little Americans move. <laughs> <laughs> it's two facts for the price of one, Chris. <laughs> From baffling British weather, the sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out, games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, flies without wings, what's in the pipeline to prevent ageing, And in a world where ordinary citizens can make it into orbit, how do we define what we call an astronaut? In the meantime, here's the next part of our Guess Who game that's been running through the show. First, we heard this noise. And now I have a different clue for you. Chris, this group of animals, there you go, are native to Australia, New Guinea and Sulawesi. Any idea what it might be? Um, I mean, I'm in favour of the bird theory here. It sounds bird birdish to me. Um, so, does that help us knowing that it's from there? Um, what are what are the birds that are particular to that area? Kiwis are just New Zealand, aren't they? Um, kookaburras—they just 
but they don't laugh like that. They've got a different laugh. I don't know any other birds. <laughs> still, it's a limited number of birds, but nonetheless, I think you were in the right area, right? There was They were definitely native to the region, so definitely points for your workings out there, Chris. And we'll come, of course, onto that again a bit later with another clue. Andrew, over to you. Rosie's been in touch with us, and she says a question that's very apt for you. What's the secret to living a longer life? Well, it's a great question. And I actually think there are a variety of different types of health advice you can take. Obviously, you know, you can eat well, you can get plenty of exercise, you can do a lot of things that we've all heard about. But what I think is the most important piece of health advice actually sounds quite strange. And that is to campaign for more funding for ageing biology research. And the reason is that once you're already doing the sort of basic stuff that a lot of us already know, then the single biggest determinant of how long you live, how long your friends and family live in good health is going to be how well we do in understanding ageing biology. Because what that does is it allows us to get to the root cause of most of the things that cause disease and most of the things ultimately that kill us in the modern world. If you look all around the world, it doesn't matter if you're looking at the rich or the poor world, the overall number of deaths caused by aging is over two-thirds so of the 150,000 people who die every single day on planet earth more than a hundred thousand of them die of the cancer the heart disease the dementia the diabetes all those different things that aging causes and of course aging doesn't just kill you doesn't just make you ill it also makes you frail it also makes you forgetful it robs your independence and so you know obviously you can do as much as you can to optimize your lifestyle at the end of the day what we need is drugs that can tackle the fundamental biological mechanisms of aging and hopefully sort of punt some of that ill health further into the future for us so if we were trying to define it what what would we say that ageing actually is, in a, maybe in an anatomical description? Actually, the first definition I normally give isn't a biological one, but it's a statistical one. And that's because if you look at how an animal or a human's risk of death varies depending on how old they are, that gives you the characteristic rate of ageing of that species. And actually for humans, we have what's called a mortality rate doubling times. So what that means is that our risk of death doubles about every eight years. And so what that means is I'm, I'm 36 at the moment, so my risk of death, uh, my risk of not making my 37th birthday basically is about one in a thousand. But as that keeps on doubling and doubling, if I'm lucky enough to make it into my 90s and obviously nothing happens happens to sort of medical technology in between times i'm going to have a one in six chance of not making my next birthday so sort of life and death at the roll of a dice so we've all seen you know in the last uh, 12 months or 18 months how exponential growth can eventually get very very big very quickly and this is just an example of that phenomenon and so the idea would be we can look around the animal kingdom and see that this isn't a universal fact like some animals obviously live much shorter lives than we do they've got a much faster mortality rate doubling time an animal like a mouse for example its uh, risk of death doubles every few months but then the reason there's a tortoise on the cover of my book is because tortoises uh, or some kinds of tortoise have what's called negligible senescence. That just means negligible, uh, the scientific word for aging, basically. They've got a risk of death that doesn't change depending on how long ago they were born. And what that means is that they, firstly, they do live a long time. So the, the oldest recorded Galapagos tortoise made it to about 177 years old, we think. Uh, she was brought back from the Galapagos Islands by Charles Darwin and out, so outlived him by about a century. But what's more important is that when she was 150, uh, Harriet the tortoise was about as sprightly as she was when she was 50 which is to say not very she was a tortoise but you know she was still not frail she was still you know getting around as fast as she could tortoises remained reproductively active right until late life and she died of a heart attack exactly the same kind of thing a human would die of but she just died of it 100 years later so what I'd really like is to understand the sort of nitty-gritty molecular cellular biology of aging and try and make us a bit more turtle try and reduce that, uh, re that, that try and reduce that increase in the risk of death and give us you know get us a little bit closer to this negligible senescence yes over to Eleanor Oh, I, I just had a quick question. I think this is like, yeah, really fascinating. And so as you're saying, kind of if to put more money into to funding uh, research and then presumably with the more research, you could kind of live longer. So every year you survive, hopefully the, the, the technology will get better. Like, is yeah. there any statistics now about the rate at which you're improving your life expectancy by living longer? Does that make it's sense? a really good question. Yeah, it does. And um, I think actually that's one of the most exciting things about this, because I talk uh, in my book and in interviews about a cure for ageing. And that can sound like quite a controversial, weird thing. But I'm not talking about a single pill that you could take and suddenly you'd live forever. The idea is that, you know, if you live long enough in good health, that you can benefit from the first generations of anti-ageing medicine. And some of these are literally in human trials now. This isn't sort of pie in the sky sci-fi biology. That means you could potentially live a few more years in good health. And that gives scientists a few more years to develop the next generation of more advanced treatments and so on and so on. So I think you know when when our society does get to a point where we've cured aging the people who are actually living through that cure happening might not even realize because they'll be sat there you know living a few years longer getting a new drug living a few years longer still wondering if that sort of scientific waterfall of drugs is ever going to run dry but at some point they're just going to realize well our risk of death has stopped increasing with time we're not aging anymore so it's not going to be like some miraculous moment when we suddenly have this pill it's going to be a gradual process of medicines just getting better and better and making us healthier and healthier until we just slowly stop dying of old age 
Okay, so I, I do want to speak to Chris about members of the public heading off to space. But before I do, a quick yes or no from the rest of the panel. Gareth, to start with you, were the other members of Jeff Bezos's Space Shepard rocket that lasted 11 minutes in suborbital flight, were they astronauts? Yes or no? Uh, yes. What about you, Eleanor? I, I, I don't know. To me, it felt like space, space tourists, which is also really, really, really awesome. That's a good answer. We might come to that in a bit. Andrew, what about you? Yes or no? I think no. And I think the worst part of it was that Jeff Bezos seemed to insist on being referred to as astronaut Jeff Bezos for, you know, thereafter. And even if they are called astronauts, it's not a title. Chris Riley, uh, you're, our, you're our space junkie for today. What are your views on this? So you've got to examine a bit of the backstory on this. Where does space begin? So it's a thing called the Kármán line, which is defined by the amount of air pressure, air density, that you need to give lift to a wing to give you flight, powered flight. And if you go higher and higher and higher, the density of the air gets lower and lower and lower until you can't actually get any lift from a wing. Further still, you can't steer a vehicle using a wing because it doesn't interact with the the fewer and fewer atoms and molecules in the air to give you any sort of force. And, and that's the Kármán line. So it sits at around about 100 kilometres or 60 miles. And so back in the 1960s, the US Air Force had a few pilots flying these rocket planes called the X-15 planes. And they said, well, you know, it'd be really nice if our, our, our you know, brave X-15 pilots, and my God, they were brave. If any of you have seen the film First Man, you'll know how terrifying those those vittles were to fly those aircraft. Anyway, um, they said, well, look, they, they are only going up to about 80 kilometres, 50 miles up, and we want to give them astronaut wings. So the Air Force started saying, OK, space begins at 50 miles, not 60. Um, and now, so let's um, spin forward a few decades, and suddenly we've got tourists doing these, these flights. So Virgin gets up about 86 kilometres. So it goes over the US Air Force-defined line, for the edge of space and hence in their marketing they call it the edge of space because it's not really at the Kármán line. Um, Blue Origin well clears the Kármán line at 100 kilometres it goes up another 10 above that roughly and of course SpaceX is orbital Uh, it's staggeringly the the crew of Inspiration4 flew pretty much higher than most space shuttle flights and space station flights have have, have been making over the decades up to 575 kilometres incredibly it's really only a couple of Hubble servicing missions and uh, and the Apollo missions that have gone higher than that. So are all these people, you know, astronauts? Um, well, the thing, as Andrew points out, actually, is is a, is a good point, because um, this this it's not so much a title, astronaut Jeff Bezos. It's not a, it's not a title like, you know, doctor or professor or something. It, it, it's a job. It's an actual job. So the question is, well, what, what is that job? Well, if you look at the early sort of outer space treaties that were drawn up to sort of make laws about space that would kind of keep us all safe as as human activity pushed beyond the biosphere. Um, They define astronauts as, or they use another phrase called envoys of of humankind or mankind, as it says, written back in the 60s. Um, And, you know, other laws that have have been drawn up since then call them spaceflight participants, that kind of thing. But the bottom line is actually there are laws associated with these titles and those laws, hence it being a treaty, are about protecting astronauts if they come down in another part of the Earth in a foreign lands that might do harm to them. So the term astronaut isn't just someone who's crossed the Kármán line, but a person who's, who's owed protections in international law. And that should follow whether you're a, a tourist or, or not, of course. How, however, What's an interesting distinction, I think, is that the US domestic law has been changed recently so that they have three categories of astronaut. There's crew. Um, they're the people operating the vehicle during launch, re-entry, landing. There's a spaceflight participant, this phrase again, which is a person carried in a launch or a re-entry, which is more in keeping with, with what we're seeing here now. And then there's a government astronaut, actually, which they class probably to distinguish them from tourists when they're, they're say, uh, mission specialists. They're not career astronauts. And this is where I have a problem, because I don't think any of these people should be called astronauts, frankly, because it requires a mindset shift. We don't call everyone who flies the Atlantic every day an aviator. We call them passengers. You know, they're going somewhere to do something. There's, 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 There's hundreds of thousands of people at any moment of the day and night that are working, uh, you know, in the stratosphere, but they're usually on laptops, filling in spreadsheets or doing their their other jobs, you know, or watching a film, for goodness sake, or eating, 
eating some food up there. They're just, you know, they're just living and they just happen to be in the in the stratosphere. As well, that ties quite nicely in with those Russian filmmakers that have gone up to carry out a job in space, right? And their, their, their job isn't to be an astronaut. Their job is to go and direct a film. They're a great example. Of course they are, because they, they, they were, were no more astronauts than, than I'm a pilot when I fly to, to New York. You know, they were just filmmakers that were up there making a film, as you say. Exactly. So my, my passionate argument here is to, to abolish the word astronaut unless you are a, a pilot. That's right. And you can find Chris on Twitter if you've got an issue with it. I'll give that to you later on in the show. Uh, we'll try and keep it quite quick. Uh, Andrew, what have you got to say? I just thought it was wonderfully ironic that the Kármán line is defined as the point above which a wing doesn't work. And yet this badge you get when you become an astronaut is called the astronaut wings. Like, <laughs> they clearly haven't thought this through. I have no answer. No one's ever actually pointed that out to me, but I can't disagree with you. You're fueling the fire, Andrew. <laughs> uh, Eleanor, what about you? Uh, I, I had a very important question. So talking about these uh, space flight participants or, or space tourists, or whatever label they're going to get, the important question is, how long is it until there's going to be budget space travel? Like, you know, is there, do you see that there's going to be a, a flyby version of space? Well, yeah, that is a good question. I mean, I suppose it depends on what's being sold, I guess. So, you know, already for Branson and Bezos's ticket prices are around the sort of $200,000 mark. You know, there's still high price tags. But, you know, they're up there with a, a with a big adventure holiday that where, you know, you've got to pay tens of thousands of pounds to climb Everest these days, for example. So they're not out of kilter with that. The question you asked is, you know, is it going to become more affordable, I suppose, budget? And the short answer is, I mean, the more uh, early adopters there are, the more people that sort of, you know, queue up to do this sort of activity, the, the more affordable it gets. I mean, Musk thinks he can bring the kind of price down to something that's in the low tens of thousands of dollars for something that's that's even orbital. And actually, he's, he was talking about the price of a, of a flight to Mars, um, which is comparable to the costs that the pilgrims had to pay to, to sail to the new world, which is essentially the price of your house. You'd sell your house and go and live on Mars. That seems staggering because it was, in relative terms, it was hundreds of hundreds of billions to get to the moon in today's money, and it would be trillions to get to Mars. So it's the thought of doing that for the price of a house. And it, however you look at it, and however there are negatives and positives to this in terms of the expenditure, it's 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 a revolution that these people have pioneered simply by hacking the rocket equation to make space vehicles reusable. That that's the revolution. It's a material science and a chemistry revolution. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet, and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at Spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. If you want to get involved, you can send a question to us using our web form at nakedscientists.com forward slash question. But now I've got a question for you at home. Yep, we have a game of guess who running throughout the show. First, we heard this noise. Have a listen. Then we found out that these animals are native to Australia, New Guinea and Sulawesi. Now I'm going to tell you, Eleanor, a newborn baby of this species is only 1.5 centimetres long, weighs only two grams. We're really not giving you much to go on today, are we? No. Um, well, well now, you, now you say it's that small. Well, then again, you do get hummingbirds and stuff that are that tiny, but I'm, I'm not convinced that it's a, it's a bird. I'm, I'm thinking that it might be something else. It's really hard, isn't it? One of the most amazing facts I found out while researching my book was that mice, I think I'm going to get this number right, it's that they have 1.5 millilitres of blood. And it just makes you realise the scale of small animals. It's because, um, you know, volume shrinks a lot when you make something smaller because obviously volume goes as length cubed if we're going to talk about the mass of it. So these animals that are small, they weigh surprisingly little. They've got tiny, tiny supplies of blood. So I feel like two grams, I don't know whether that's like tiny or really tiny. Question now is, will the next hint be about the volume of blood in this animal you'll have to wait and see now as we always do we have a little quiz at this point in the program and it's time for you to play along at home too so that means that i'm gonna have to separate you guys into teams i've got gareth and chris you guys are forming team one and eleanor and andrew you guys are team two 
fantastic and we get the free snail and you get the free snail three members for the price of two (laughs) you guys can of course confer in fact we we definitely prefer it if you do and in expectation of halloween this week's quiz is going to be extra spooky that's right round one we've got hubble bubble boil and trouble this is a question on potions so for team one A spooky, foggy environment for your Halloween party can be easily achieved with a bit of dry ice and some water. When exposed to room temperature, dry ice or solid CO2 turns to a gas, causing the water to turn to fog. But what is the temperature above which dry ice turns to gas? Is it A, minus 58.5 degrees Celsius? Is it B, minus 78.5 degrees Celsius? Or is it C, minus 98.5 degrees Celsius? What do we think, Team 1? Well, I hope Chris knows with his, his planetary science. My engineering thing is leaving me a little bit kind of um, clueless here, really. It uh, might be a guess. Uh, I'm assuming we're not allowed to look these up. No, I was about to Google it, actually. Is that not allowed? <laughs> Would anybody notice? I don't think both of you being on the same team is such a good idea anymore. <laughs> we're just really competitive, aren't we, Chris? Yes, I guess so. I mean, I, I know... I know it's if you drop it on your hands, it's a, it's a bit of a party trick, isn't it? It doesn't like really badly injure them. I think it's lower rather than higher is my guess. Are we allowed to jump think? in for a bonus point? Yes, no. Andrew, go. <laughs> Anyone who's ever worked in a biology lab should instantly know the answer to this question because there's a special freezer that's around this kind of temperature. Well, I think Andrew's stolen the show to here, so you're going to have to take over, Andrew. This wasn't in the script, everyone, so we're going completely, <laughs> we're going completely off-road. Yeah, we, we can answer their question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the way it's going to go. It's a real high strategy, this, isn't it? I'm giving you access. So the answer is B, minus 78 degrees. My goodness, Chris and Gareth, how did you know that? Fantastic, the answer is B. (laughs) A number of other uses beyond just fog include for preserving food and vaccines. So dry ice gets used for quite a few different things. Question two, this is coming over to team two. Vampires love human blood. It's a well-known fact. But when humans are in short supply or things are tough financially, they might have to turn to a bit of chemistry in order to get some fake blood instead. One way to do this is to combine the colourless potassium thiocyanate, that's KSCN, water and one other colourless compound. So two colourless compounds that come together and make fake blood. But what compound is the other? Is it A, iron chloride, B, manganese chloride or C, iodine chloride? Uh, well, I, I know from uh, my uh, my days as an amateur dramatics person that uh, the answer is always ketchup, but um, that wasn't one of the options, so, um, <laughs> so I'm not sure. Oh, this is tough, isn't it? I mean, obviously there's there's iron in real blood, but there's mm. also potassium. Oh, no, I'm, my chemistry is my blind spot. <laughs> Should we right, go for the... Yeah, let's go for it. Iodine, whatever it was. It was, in fact, iron chloride, and you can do this at home as well. Add it with potassium thiocyanate. There you go. There's a fun Halloween-y science experiment for you, um, not just for vampires. Round two is uh, dedicated to pumpkins. And I've, I've got a good title here for you guys, so prepare yourselves. It's Give Them Pumpkin to Talk About. Hey. Hey. <laughs> the Guinness World Record for the world's biggest pumpkin is held by Matthias from Belgium. But how large was Matthias's pumpkin? Was it A, 11.9 kilograms, B, 119 kilograms, or C, 1,190 kilograms? That's a big pumpkin. It couldn't have been C, could it, Chris? Can any pumpkin be that heavy? Yeah, I I think it could be C. My wife grows pumpkins uh, and they are enormous and they regularly, I think, go up well, well over the middle one, I think. I mean, it's they're hard to lift. You need two people. Wow. Um, um, is it possible, Chris, that you've actually broken the Guinness World Record and just not declared <laughs> it? Well, I guess it, I guess it is. We'll, we'll find out soon, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> right. So you think it's the heavier one? Well, I, I, Chris I, and, and the family there—they have more pumpkin knowledge than me. I'm I'm really winging it here. I, I think it's over a ton. I th- I, that's what I go wow. for. The answer is C. There you go. A typical giant pumpkin grows from seed to huge orange squash in only 120 to 160 days. At peak growth, it can put on up to 15 kilograms every day. It's almost all water, though, I think, right? I'm going to go with your knowledge as well, Chris, at this point. (laughs) 
having carved a few with my daughter over the last decade, uh, it's pretty mushy when you get in there. <laughs> and that would be an absolute whopper to put on the doorstep. You must be able to make a house out of that. I, I've, I've got a feeling it features in various nursery rhymes, doesn't it? You know, that you've got um, people living in pumpkins. I'm sure there's one or two. There is something there. Yeah, it rings a bell of a child's story for sure. Question two. So this is still on the theme of pumpkins. We're all used to carving them, especially Chris, at Halloween. But this tradition started with another vegetable. Eleanor, Andrew, what is it? Is it A, a swede, B, a turnip, or C, sugar beet? I, ooh, ooh. I'm, I'm, so I'm from the Isle of Man. And, and so we, we actually, we don't celebrate Halloween. We celebrate Hopchine. And traditionally, now I'm going to get lynched if I get this wrong, but I think traditionally it's a turnip, but we don't do it. But we've, I tried that before and it was really hard. So we, we tend to avoid that and go down the... The pumpkin thing. Andrew, I feel like your hands might be tied here. Eleanor's coming very strong there. I, I feel like it's probably not the sugar beet. And, I, you know, that, that might be a good sort of trick or treat thing. But I, no, I think I'm going to go with what Eleanor says. She sounds like she's coming from a place of confidence and slight nervousness. Hooray! The answer is B. It is turnip. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What, what goes on in the, in the Isle of Man then with, with this festival that's not Halloween? What do you do? <laughs> Well, the tradition is actually quite dark, as most traditions are. And the idea is that you you carve it out and you put a, um, a candle in it and you have to go from door to door. But then if it blows out, then someone you know is going to die in the next year, which is pretty dark. So you've got to make sure it doesn't blow out. It's it's, it's a friendly, happy tradition. Um, you, but you uh, have quite small holes in it just to try and ensure <laughs> the health and well-being of your relatives and friends. Exactly. Well, well, the tricky thing is it's, it's a trade-off. You want the smaller hole as possible to stop this thing from blowing out. But at the same time, you want them as big as possible so you get oxygen in. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky balance. It's oh. a tricky balance. The whole pumpkin thing is just a lot, lot, lot easier, really. <laughs> Sounds very, very stressful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially trying to carve a, a turnip there really, really hard. <laughs> wow. Fantastic stuff. So at the end of round two, we're looking at one apiece with perhaps... A bonus point going in favour of the uh, with the Sherlock Holmes. That's to be discussed later on, depending on how competitive Gareth and Chris get. Obviously, <laughs> round three. This is the last round, so it's um, it's possibly all a piece. I'm not really sure, but it's trick or treat. Question one. This is coming back to Gareth and Chris. Here we go. Consider this scenario where an unknown alien species is trying to pull a prank on the whole of humanity in one go by doing the old classic of TPing, TPing the earth, assuming that one roll of toilet paper has a total surface area of 94 centimetres squared, how many rolls of toilet paper would be needed to cover the entire surface of the earth? Is it 5.4 times 10 to the 10 uh, rolls of toilet paper? Is it B, 5.4 times 10 to the 14? Or is it C, 5.4 times 10 to the 28 rolls of toilet paper? Crikey, I'm glad I'm not you boys at the That's moment. more than a mole of loo rolls. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Avogadro, eat your heart out. Uh, <laughs> Gareth, what, what do you think? How big's well, the earth? Well, I'm just wondering, is it, would it be enough to wrap round one of your pumpkins, really, is, is the question. <laughs> so how big, you see, the earth is, we'll have to do pi r squared on this one, because isn't the the diameter of the earth about, 24,000 miles or something. That's I don't know where. circumference of the Earth. That's, that, oh, yeah. thank you. Right, yeah, so, I think that's the circumference. Oh, and what's the volume of a sphere? Is it, is it pi 4? 4 pi r 3, isn't it? Four, yeah, is that right? Anybody? The, the volume is 4 thirds pi r cubed, but the surface area, which is what you're looking for, is 4 pi r squared. Don't help him! Sorry, Don't help no, them! What are you doing? I mean, if I help them enough, do we sort of get some of the points? I think, I think you get liked by the audience, is what happens. Yeah, you do. Yeah. 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 Oh, listen to this maths nerd. Let's all love him. Well, I mean, I can't be bothered to work this out, frankly, guys, but um, should we just go for somewhere in the, in the middle? In the mid-range. 10 to the 14, 10 to the 28. They're such big numbers, it's hard to know what's different about them. Yeah, and I didn't really write the numbers down first time, actually. <laughs> I've got an excuse. 10 to the 28, sir, that's a lot. 10 to the 14... Feels more, I'm more comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. The Earth's not that big. Hooray! All right. Yes, that's, that's completely correct. Team two, to stay in the runnings, here comes the question. Another in common ingredient in Halloween sweets is palm oil. You might have heard of this. It's been linked to deforestation, particularly in Southeast Asia. But what percentage of the items that you find in the supermarket contains palm oil? Is it A, 30%, B, 50%, or C, 70%? 
Oh, that's a really good question. I think it's going to be scarily high, but I feel like yeah. 70% is really high. Because I know you have yeah. it in like shampoo and soap and stuff. It's not just in... Yeah, but you get it in a lot of foods, like a lot, a lot of foods. And when it says like the number of items in the supermarket, when I think about going down to the mega supermarket near us, they've got loads of stuff in there. Like it's not in the toys or the hi-fis, is it? <laughs> Probably depends on the toys. <laughs> in the toilet roll, maybe. No, because I... I because. I reckon that he wouldn't have put all of the, the answers as the as the middle because that would be too easy. Um, <laughs> I sort yeah. of put palm oil, food science, and more psychology to answer this question. All right, all right, let's go with seventy. Let's do it. Okay, yeah, let's go seventy. Go you sure you don't want to go for the middle? Yep, we're oh. definitely going to. We're going all in. Okay, all in. Oh. It's not in those hi-fi systems. So the answer is 50%. 50% of the items in the supermarket. I've unredeemed myself. You're you're right. You're right. It's not just sweets. Uh, It's included in many toiletries. So look out for the next time you're in the supermarket. You might might see it there going by a few different names. But we're going to go on to a tiebreaker. So this one's called The Monster Bat. Yes, bats are a favourite feature of many Halloween parties. But one type of bat you are less likely to encounter around this time of year is the cricket bat. Yep, after the infamous monster bat incident of 1771 when a cricket player called Thomas White used a bat as wide as the wicket, the rules were modified to introduce a maximum width for said instruments uh, on the pitch. To the nearest millimetre, what is the maximum width of a cricket bat as defined by the official rules, the official rules of cricket? 120. I think think it might be a bit wider than 12 centimetres. 150. This is, yeah, yeah, I feel better with that. Yeah, 151 millimeters by Team One. Team Two. If it's smaller. Uh, we could just go 150 and win by default. I think, or we could go one centimeter bigger and win by oh. default. That way. What do you reckon? Do you reckon I, I think it's because, like, if you think about a, a 15 centimeter ruler, I feel like that's mm. wider than a cricket bat. But then I, I haven't played cricket for about as long as I haven't done GCSEs for. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I don't think I've ever done cricket in my life. So I, 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 I so about your superior. Should we go for 100? 50. <laughs> yeah. No, that fit, oh, so uh, let's go for 150. I'm doing it. Okay. I'm 150. So what you guys have done basically is taken all that goodwill from the, <laughs> the first question. You're thrown it under the bus. You're closer. You are closer, team two, Eleanor and Andrew, with that horrible tactic. It it is in fact 108 millimeters. So you might not be eight. Wow. You might not be the audience's favourite, but you do walk away with the prize. Well, there we go. How does it feel? Team two. It feels great. Pick up my cricket bat and run around the house celebrating. (laughs) You're with me, Harry Lewis. And of course, Gareth Mitchell, Chris Riley, Eleanor Drinkwater and Andrew Steele, who are tackling this week's talking points and answering the science questions you've been sending in. A quick pit stop, though. It's time for the fourth and final clue for our Guess Who game. Let's catch you back up to speed. The group of animals this belongs to are native to Australia, New Guinea and Sulawesi. A newborn baby of this species is only 1.5 centimetres long and weighs in at two grams. And rather confusingly, if you stick an O on the front of this creature's name, you'll get an unrelated species, looks very similar and lives in the US. So stick on the, an O on the, on the front of that name. You've got yourself a different animal. This is hard because my first thought was O kangaroo, which obviously isn't a thing. Um, <laughs> then my second thought was uh, ocelot, which, which, and a cellot. There's no such thing as that. Oh, I think actually you've made me more confused, if anything, by providing this linguistic clue. I, and I'm going to completely kick myself when I hear the answer to this, aren't I? There's a pretty good chance of that, Andrew. Yeah. Do stay tuned, though, because we will let you know what the mystery thing is very shortly. Back to you, Gareth. Last week, Facebook came under scrutiny after internal research on children's mental health was leaked to the press. It feels like these kind of topics, Gareth, come around in the news all too often. And I think what listeners might be wondering is what is being done at the moment to stop this? Yeah, sure. Well, the social media companies are, I suppose, doing their bit. A lot of people saying they're not doing enough. But um, for instance, last year, um, Facebook, along with Google and Microsoft and uh, a load of other tech companies, they got together to launch what they call Project Protect, which is a plan to combat 
online child sexual abuse. And some of those are things that you'd expect, like tech solutions, improving their algorithms and that kind of things. But a lot of these fixes were more about just the social aspects and indeed ways that the companies could work together. So more transparency, more knowledge, more sharing and more working with uh, policymakers. Um, so that's certainly from the social media companies, but um, but they always just seem to be under the spotlight. And uh, earlier this week, I mean, you'll, you'll know that there was this BBC investigation on Panorama that um, in this case was looking at abuse against women. So, you know, a different but related issue in the technology companies. And uh, I'm afraid that um, Facebook and Instagram, which of course Facebook owns, came out the worst in terms of... Um, pushing as it were um violent and misogynistic content to users and of course facebook said well we are improving our algorithms we're, we're trying to sort this out but certainly in these really important issues about hate speech and then of course the, where we started this conversation in terms of protecting children and combating online child sexual abuse um, the technology companies are taking action but many people are not saying enough and that there's a huge role now for regulation and i guess that's what it comes down to it's not feet on the ground in this world because it's across the internet it's how good your algorithm is at finding these ads or finding this content and removing it is that right well that's partly it and i suppose to be fair to these companies they have loads of users and these are difficult things to police and and of course facebook will say it has employs thousands of fact checkers for instance and youtube has thousands of people um screening through videos to check for um abusive or violent content there or content that breaks its terms and conditions and but i suppose our argument would be well we just think you should employ more people to do this and of course for the tech companies that's hurtful because it uh, it affects their profits and of course people like us enjoy using these services uh, for inverted commas free but of course they're not free because uh, we, we're giving them our data and our attention but it i think what this points to i mean it's very complicated but just the economics of social media this um this perception that they're free and our expectation that we can just get onto them without actually having to make a cash transaction and maybe realising a little less than we should that it is a transaction. It's just our data and our attention that we're handing over. And I think I'd be amongst some who would say, actually, that is more valuable than cash within reason. Mm, Something that always feels quite blurred as well, but hard to remember when you're just popping on your phone on an app to have a look down social media you are giving something back thanks very much there gareth no worries eleanor i feel like we've skirted around insects for the whole show and it would just be rude to not delve into them in some capacity uh the submission for this year's national wildlife photographer are up for everyone to see uh, that's in the natural history museum but it jogged my memory about an old submission they got a special mention last year You may have seen it. It was a rather grisly pic of a parasite circulating on the internet. It was attached to a bat. Well, here we go, panel. I have a picture somewhere here. Oh, dear. That that doesn't look ideal, does it? It's so cute. Look at his little face. Eleanor, can you describe to us what what we can see? What is the picture of? Uh, So, essentially, you can see the world's most adorable bat fly, which is uh, kind of clinging onto the face of, 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 well, a bat. And uh, yeah, it's it's a really amazing photo. Like it's it's an incredible photo. So it's this bright orange kind of insect that's literally covering where the eyes you would have thought and would be on a bat. That's a fly, because to me, and I'm not an entomologist by mm-hmm. any stretch. Obviously, it's got six legs, so it isn't. But to me, it looks like a cross between like a scorpion and a spider. Well, I think this just really highlights just how incredible flies are. Because I think that when we think about flies we think about a blue bottle buzzing around but actually that is only really the tip of the iceberg with the immense diversity of of flies really and so taking this one as an example of the bat fly there are many species of bat flies some of which are generalists and so will feed on on different um bats whereas other ones are are kind of specialists and so you get a certain species of bat fly that will parasitize a particular bat and they'll kind of live pretty much most of their lives kind of attached onto the the bat usually on their kind of lower lower back and uh and and yeah and so they have a very kind of perhaps surprising life life of a fly but i absolutely love them because they they really fill every single niche in which it's possible to 
kind of exist. And then there will be a species of fly that live there. Like, for example, you may not know this, but there is actually a subspecies of mosquito which lives on the London underground. It's developed to be able to live underground on our London underground. And the fascinating thing is that different lines on the, the, the tube in London, it will have slightly different kind of genetic variation between them, which just kind of really highlights this amazing ability of this group to kind of really change and adapt and kind of fill all these, these amazing uh, different niches, which is why I think they're great. Heading over to you, Andrew. Uh, Jill has been in touch as well to to continue on basically the conversation we were having earlier. Why is it that some animals live for so long? I know you've spoken about this, but I think there's loads more to say. And some live such a short period of life. It's a really great question. Actually, I think we can tie this into the bats that we were just talking about. Because the reason fundamentally for anything that happens in biology is evolution. And so if you look at an animal like a bat, bats are sort of the same kind of size as a rat or a mouse. They're in the same uh, sort of family. They're all very closely related species. But what you find is that the longest lived bats can live maybe 30, 40 years in the wild. Whereas if you look at a mouse in the lab, they can live two, three years, maybe some of them, you know, four years at the absolute outside. So what is it that the bats have learned to do in order to, you know, live that much, much longer period of time? And crucially, from an evolutionary point of view, what's driven that change? And actually, I think in the case of bats, it's because they can fly. And it's not just because flying is brilliant fun and they want to, you know, press on and, you know, enjoy carrying on that lifestyle. It's because it makes them a lot, lot safer than mice. So imagine you're a mouse and you're, um, you know, you're going about your day. There are loads of dangers all in the world around you. There's, there's cats that can kill you. There's infectious disease. You're a tiny little animal, so you can just die of exposure. You can just die of being too cold. And what that means is that when evolution is trying to set up your biology, it's not going to put a huge amount of energy into giving you elaborate anti-cancer defences. Because frankly, by the time you come down with cancer, aged maybe two or three years as a mouse, you've probably already been eaten. Whereas if you're a bat, you're flying up in the sky, you've got far fewer natural predators, you can fly to a nice warm cave, so you know, keep yourself cosy if the weather gets a bit cold. And what that means is evolution has had a lot more chance to evolve these anti-cancer defences, defences against heart disease, defences against things like inflammation, which is one of the sort of molecular biological causes of the ageing process. And that means that you can find animals that are surprisingly closely related, but nonetheless have these wildly divergent lifespans. So actually the irony is that the reason uh, that you die of ageing is because you can die of other things. And the less you die of other things, the more evolution is incentivized to slow down your ageing as a species. Yeah, a really nice definition there at the end of, of what that accumulates to. And my thought is, is in the lab... Do we know, Andrew, of any species where we've been able to slow down this ageing in, in the common rat, mouse or rat? Have we been able to extend their lifespan? Loads of different species, yes. Yeah. So there are all kinds of what are called model organisms that we use in the lab that obviously aren't humans, but have their various advantages to try and understand the fundamental biology. And we've slowed down ageing in nematode worms, these tiny little millimetre long worms that are often used in ageing experiments, in flies, and obviously in mice, because they're the ones that are closest to human beings before you start getting into really big, difficult animals to work with, like monkeys. And what you can do with mice is, well, let's, let's give an example. You can give mice drugs that are called senolytic drugs. And the reason they're so named is that they kill aged senescent cells, which are one of the fundamental underlying causes of aging that i talk about in the book and as you accumulate these cells as you get older they basically accelerate the aging process so the idea is that by taking one of these drugs you can kill the senescent cells but leave the rest of the cells in the mouse's body or hopefully in the future in humans bodies intact and what that means is you basically make those mice biologically younger so we gave these drugs to mice that were aged about 24 months and obviously we just mentioned mice have a much shorter lifespan than we do so that's sort of 70 ish in human years and even though these mice are very old and they received the treatment they basically got biologically younger they lived a bit longer, but they didn't just live longer in ill health, sort of stumbling along, unable to summon up the energy to die. They got fewer diseases, they got less cancer, they got less heart disease, they got fewer cataracts. And it wasn't just the diseases, they were less frail. They could run further and faster on the little mousy treadmills they use in these experiments. They always send the mice down the gym to sort of test their frailty. They were more curious. So if you put an old mouse in a maze, it's often a bit anxious, maybe just a bit lazy, doesn't want to explore. And by removing these senescent cells, you could rejuvenate some of that youthful curiosity. And honestly, these mice just look great. I'm a, a computational biologist by training, so I've never dealt with any actual animals in the lab, you know, heaven forbid. But even to my untrained eye, these mice look fantastic. They've got better fur, they've got better skin. They just look amazing. Thanks very much there to Andrew Steele. And of course, you can feel it. It's starting to come towards the end of the show. It's the dying embers, if you will. But you'll notice that I never let on, did I? That's right. You still don't know what the mystery thing is. Panel, have we got any idea what it might be? Hmm, yeah. I mean, possums are like... Possum. Um... Yes, that's it. You've done it. Helen has done it. Helen <laughs> has done 
Fantastic. They're only two grams when they're born. That is absolutely crazy. That's so small, and isn't it, it? It had to be Eleanor, really, didn't it? At this point, <laughs> I think my money was definitely on the ecologist it out of this panel for guessing an animal. That's right, everybody. The answer is, in fact, a possum. If you got that. Very well done. It's time to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you very much for listening and for sending in your questions. Another thank you to our panel, of course. That's Gareth Mitchell, Chris Riley, Eleanor Drinkwater and Andrew Steele. Next week, it's nothing but arachnids. Sally LePage will be getting into the spirit of Halloween. I've got to go find a new costume, actually, and I'm thinking, perhaps, after this show, something possum-themed? The Naked Scientists come to you from the Institute of Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge, supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Harry Lewis, and from all of us here at the Naked Scientists team, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.